When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the guy who didn't want to build a cycling deck because that's not his favorite type of cardio. It's Matt Morgan. Well, I found out the hard way this weekend that there is a certain type of nail you're not supposed to hit with a hammer. That is your fingernails. Ow! 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 Not pleasant. That is visceral. That's ooh, a painful way to begin a show, man. Ouch. Anyway, next, the guy who claims that it's not that he wasn't paying attention. It's just that he had phased out for the turn. That's Dana Roach. I'm going to combine a challenge to stats with a little life lesson here. Ancestral masks should be in every Enchantress deck. Um, they're wearing their masks, and please, you should be too. <laughs> Darn right. Absolutely. Well played. And this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for your new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Fellas, what are we talking about this week? We're going to be talking about engines and wind conditions. Yeah, we want to sort of study the difference between those two categories in the deck and sort of see maybe where a balance can be drawn or the different relationships that those cards have to one another should be really interesting. But before we get to that topic, we of course have to give an enormous thank you to the folks at the Command Zone. Josh Lequai and the whole team at Command Zone handle all the post-production work on the podcast and make it look as spiffy and nifty as it possibly can. Excellent work, so huge thank you to them. And of course, we would love to thank our sponsors for the show as well. We are. The show wouldn't be the same without our great sponsors, so Card King Kingdom.com and TCGplayer.com. They help keep the lights on. They help produce the show. So, of course, we want to thank them. Uh, whether you're buying or selling, you know, I just ordered all my Magic Core 21 singles. They arrive pretty dang quickly, I, I must admit. Um, so I use that that affiliate link, just cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC. Or, or if you prefer TCGplayer.com, you can just click on one of the price links on EDHREC. That'll take you right to TCGplayer.com. That'll let you know that we sent you over and they'll get you taken care of as well. So thank you, as always, to our great sponsors, Card Kingdom and TCGplayer.com. 
It's very delightful. And uh, I cannot wait to uh, destroy you guys in games with all of those new cards that I've gotten. Um, <laughs> hey, another thing that we want to mention before we get on to our main topic is something really exciting, and that is EDH Rec is redoing the salt scores. So as folks probably know, we've done a couple of episodes on this in the past. EDH Rec has a log of what the community has agreed upon are the most salt-inducing cards in the game, the stuff that people maybe don't like seeing all that much in games of Commander. And that list can be found at edhrec.com slash top slash salt, which will show you the top 100 most salt-inducing cards that people have voted upon to say, yeah, I think that this is a really salt-inducing card. That card makes me salty indeed. But what we want to do is keep that updated. Who knows? Maybe things have shifted around, and so we want to poll again. And you may have already seen that link on our social medias, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. It's been pinned up there this whole week because we want folks to vote and to tell us what the most salty cards are in Commander nowadays. That link is is edhrec.com slash NACL. And if you need a mnemonic for that, NACL is the chemical formula for sodium chloride. So that is where you can go to vote on what you think are the most salt-inducing cards in EDH. Let us know what are the cards that you don't like seeing all that much. And hey, if stuff has shifted around, maybe we'll do a new episode about it in the future. Who knows? Um, but one other final thing that we want to mention before we get started, there's one more thing. Now take it away. Yeah, and that is... You know, you can join the EDH Rec team, uh, edhrec.com slash apply and submit any of your article submissions. If you have a nice idea, you have a cool pitch for an article, maybe you want to talk about the salt score and some of that data and how, you know, the, the users of the site can use that to further help their deck building skills. Go and join the team, just edhrec.com slash apply, submit your pitch for an article series, and we'll go over that. And it's an easy way to join the team. Yeah, awesome stuff. Okay, now let's get to it. We are talking about engine and win conditions, sort of studying the difference between the engines that makes a person's deck run smoothly in EDH versus the, the win conditions of the deck. So maybe let's just set the stage for what we'll be, you know, sort of defining for those terms. What would you say necessarily is uh, something that makes a, an engine, like what is that? It's kind of a, a loose term maybe, but what is an engine in an EDH deck? Well, an engine, as the term that we've used and, and tons of other podcasts, you know, it's it's very common slang in the magic world. But if you haven't really been keyed in for that long, an engine is kind of the cards that you use to propel your deck forward, whether it's drawing cards or generating mana, just something that's going to advance your deck and further that game plan that you set out in that game to go about. Uh, there's so many different engines. It's, it's hard to just be a comprehensive, you know, here's all the cards because it varies from deck to deck too. That's kind of one of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode. Yeah, a really big piece, I think, there. Like, when I hear engine, I think the first idea that jumps to my mind is maybe a card such as Guardian Project, for example. Whenever you get creatures into play, you'll draw cards. That is an engine that keeps my deck fueled so that I can continue to cast more of those creatures. But I think it's really important not to just think of engines in the context of they help you draw cards. There are a lot of other ways that a deck can have a quote-unquote engine as well. Yeah, like a, a sack outlet... Uh, married to a grave pact effect could be the engine that keeps the board entirely clear of your opponent's creatures, allowing you to then get to the win condition, which is the next thing we want to talk about here. The win condition is how you close out the game. Um, people sometimes tend to focus on that being a specific card versus a game state, and it definitely can be both. Crater Hoof Behemoth is absolutely a win condition in some decks, but sometimes the win condition is just a position you're trying to maneuver yourself into that then lets you win the game, whether it's a, a board spread of tokens or um, you know a, a bunch of things 
things that have in fact whatever. Um, so the win condition is just how you actually close things out. I, I really love that distinction that you make there because like, yeah, Crater Hoof Behemoth is totally the win condition, but if you play that into an empty board, that's not doing right. a whole lot of anything now, is it? So it, these are very much things that you have to plan for. And an engine, maybe uh, one of your engines might be something, a token producer, um, like a Tendershoot Dryad, for example, which creates tons and tons of sapperlings, which then facilitates your ability to have a lethal crater hoof behemoth in the first place. And another point, too, I think about engines to make sure that we remark upon is, is not just that they propel you forward, but sometimes they're also the thing that helps you catch back up in the game. If everything kind of went south, if your crater hoof behemoth plan didn't work out and then someone wrathed the entire board and you weren't able to get anywhere. An engine sometimes is also the thing that lets you get back into that game even when everything has gone completely downhill. Well, and another good thing to say about engines too is sometimes they can be the commanders and they just help maximize the cards that you have in your deck. Uh, Joe, you have a rune deck and that thing, you know, not any one specific card is incredibly powerful on its own, but with rune around maximizing what you get from each and every card in the deck, rune as the commander is quite a powerful engine just making sure that all those things that you have in the deck you are getting so much value from that it's it's a good way to get to that end game you want to be at yeah absolutely he is an engine not because he's drawing me cards but simply because he can repeat multiple blink effects over and over again and maybe those draw me cards or maybe those make me tokens or something but rune and other blink effects within the deck are definitely what facilitates the strategy to become to, to put me into a position to maneuver myself into that area where i can play a win condition maybe like a crater half behemoth i don't no, just throwing that out there, uh, which would then make that uh, point lethal. So yeah, blinking effects is definitely one of those things. Um, what are some other examples uh, for decks that you guys have, though? Um, like if you were going to hand someone your deck, for example, you'd be like, yeah, these are the cards that will help the deck do what it wants to, but here's how you close the door. What are some distinctions with, uh, within your own personal lists? Um, you know, for example, to use, uh, I've talked about my Veil of the Nightclad deck on this on this show before, um, Vela herself is... A, a win condition in that once I've got to the point in the game where I either have a bunch of beater artifact creatures out, she will make them unblockable so I can swing in and kill somebody. Or if I'm in a position where I have a bunch of tokens and a sack outlet, she, when she comes into play, can allow me to just kill everybody by sacrificing a bunch of those, those token creatures and doing damage directly to players. So... I have to, like like with the Crater Hoof Behemoth, she kind of functions like that. I have to have put myself in that position, but once I'm there, right there in the command zone, I have a card that can take advantage of multiple different ways in multiple different board states I've achieved. Yeah, and for me, for example, uh, Riel the Everwise is one of my favorite commanders. It's that is it kind of spell slinger, but you want to be discarding a lot. And Riel kind of functions as both a, a engine and a win con in that, you know, whenever I discard cards, I draw that many cards whenever I do that for the first time on the turn. That's a crazy powerful ability. But then as I'm discarding and casting more and more spells throughout the game, Riel's power gets pretty sizable, which I can then use to Chandra's Ignition the table, or I can fling or any sorts of other different cards that allow me to take advantage of how big Riel has gotten over the course of the game. So it's kind of fun to, to play around with that balance of is Riel in the moment an engine or a win condition? Yeah, and that's, I think, also an important uh, thing for us to note here, too. Um, if folks remember on our Synergy episode when we were talking about setup and payoff, um, I think that was episode 117, that's probably a lot of this sounds fairly familiar. We're talking about the things that help facilitate what the deck wants to do and then ways to spike that down. But even within that particular episode, not all of the payoffs that we talked about were necessarily win condition payoffs. For example, when we got to the landfall category in that episode, we noted some payoffs were like Lotus Cobra, which creates a bunch of mana. 
which is really good, but that's not quite the same thing as this is how I'm going to defeat my enemies. That's not reducing their life totals or or anything like that. And so that's why we kind of want to uh, focus on that too, especially in the context of, Matt, what you just mentioned there, where the commander fills very distinct roles too. And what we found in that episode was so cool that depending on what the commander does, that sort of dictates how much of the other category you need in the deck. A commander that does a lot of the setup needs more cards in the deck that are going to do more of the actual winning the game or the paying off. A commander that is all payoff really needs other cards in the deck that will help facilitate that. It needs more engine cards in the deck. So maybe let's run through some examples of commanders that strike us as falling within the the enabler or the engine category, other commanders that fall within the win condition category, and then commanders that sort of fulfill both of those roles. What are some examples that come to your guys' mind for engine sort of commanders where they're like almost, oops, all engine, but don't necessarily win the game outright? I would just from personal experience, I know my Muldroth of the Gravetide deck, mm. that card is all engine, and there's just so many ways to get value over the game. But one thing that we've talked about on the podcast before, too, is Muldrotha players, yes, it's it's incredibly easy to get an insane amount of value, and it's it's not even not even funny. It's just gross <laughs> how quickly Muldrotha decks find a ways just to get value. But finding a way to close the game is where those decks tend to struggle. And so, yes, Muldrotha is 100% in the oops all engine category there, where just lots and lots of value, but not very many ways of actually closing a game out. Sure. Uh, Brogdal, the King Eternal, um, very much like Rune, where, and Maldrotha, I guess, same thing. It's just generating a ridiculous amount of van- mana by blinking creatures that almost always in that deck have some kind of an ETB ability. Um, Brogdal's never going to kill anybody himself. Um <laughs> You know, it, it, I don't know if anyone's probably ever done that. I would love to see that that ad, ad, achievement unlocked commander damage Brago kill. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, that sounds like a long game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that seems rough. But Brago is going to generate so much value that you are going to hopefully find that win condition um, or just get so far ahead that no one else can keep up and they just scoop because you've drawn a gazillion cards off that Mull Drifter every single turn. Right. Yeah, those those sounds like great examples. On the flip side, maybe some commanders that are sort of all win condition, but not necessarily engine. Uh, an example that comes to my mind might be Xenagos, God of Revels, which pumps up the, the creatures that you play, doubling their power, giving them haste, and it's really, really great. Like, that's how you are planning to win that game, is by smashing your enemies with enormously powerful creatures. But it's not exactly the kind of commander that necessarily, like, gives you those creatures in the first place. It doesn't draw you cards to help you find more of those creatures. It's just turning them, the things that you already have through other means into something more lethal. So that's one of those commanders that would strike me as maybe more of the, uh, this is the win condition type of role for this commander. Well, I think a new example would be Bruvac the Grandiloquent, mm-hmm. the, the mill commander that we just talked about on our Jumpstart review. That commander is all about just making all those little mill cards that you have insanely powerful and doubling everything up. So yeah, it's all win condition because it's dead set on, here's this one thing that we're going to do. We're going to do it twice as well as we were doing it before. So that, to me, would put it very much in the win condition category. Uh, one Punch Man, Shu Yun, is the same thing. It's a, <laughs> a, a commander that's it's right there in the commander. You telegraph what you're going to do, um, and it's on that card. You're, you're going to cast a bunch of spells and just dome somebody in, in one turn. So, Dana, that's a good point about... Shu Yun, but how about some commanders that happen to be both win condition and engine stapled onto one card? We kind of hinted about that a little bit. What do you guys think are some some interesting commanders that function in both roles? 
Well, I mean, we talk him, uh, we talk about him in sort of hushed, grumbly tones, but Corvold <laughs> is definitely the thing that's going to beat you and the thing that's going to let the deck continue doing things because he draws so many dang cards, but also gets bigger as he does so. And he is a sacrifice ability himself. Like, he's the entire package all in one card, which is probably why he's so dang popular. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Urza falls under that same that same heading. Um, maybe Urza himself isn't killing you, but he's making that ginormous token that probably is going to be killing you and he's going to bring the free stuff into play that's going to make that token bigger or also um, work to kill you so I think Urza very much would qualify for this as well. Not only that but he also allows your artifacts to tap for mana now like Urza Urza honestly like it kind of just reminds me there's like a famous literary quote of, of like the greatest authors have the privilege of creating the standard by which they shall be judged or something like that and that's how I feel when I see Urza I'm just like he has created 18 different contexts that make him deadly and I need to be able to artistically appreciate all of them because of how much he has raised the bar. Like, that's how I feel when I look at Urza. That's how I feel when I look at a lot of these designs, to be honest. Yeah. Speaking of raising the bar, I mean, 2019, 2020 has done that. And so just to, to keep picking on, you know, these these very recent commanders, Kinnon Bonder Prodigy. Oh, yeah. That card also does kind of the same thing that Urza does, where it takes advantage of what you're already doing on board, but then also has an ability stapled on there to look at the top five of your cards in your library, and you can put a non-human creature card onto the battlefield. Uh, that's cheating things into play, and it's making it much, much easier, you know, on account of that, that ability that on Kinnon that uh, adds extra mana. I mean, adding extra mana, free mana tends to be pretty powerful. So Urza, Kinnon, those kind of fall into the same vein. Yeah, yeah for sure. Absolutely. And you can compare that to an, a commander that came from the same set that has a very similar ability is Zirda, which is the Boros commander that reduces the activated ability costs of your stuff. That um, feels very much like, hey, this is the engine, but it isn't necessarily a win condition outlet. And that's where Kinnon goes absolutely crazy because he both gives you the extra mana when you're using some of those same cards that even Zirda might be using, such as a Basalt Monolith, but then also can allow you an outlet for all of that mana too. And that's what makes it... like. It does feel, like you mentioned, Matt, it does feel as though the marrying, the merging of both the wind condition and engine is a lot more popular in designs for commanders recently, especially within the past years. Although some examples do come to mind for um, for other commanders from the past. I think that uh, like Brea, for instance, would be a really good example of a commander that facilitates the stuff that she needs to sacrifice, but also can certainly be her own wind condition outlet too. Well, and, and if we're going to go with that too, uh, Narset is one of the most historically just mm. bust commanders because you get to cast all these spells for free and you just chain off you know extra turn time warp spell after another time warp spell after a time stretch spell uh, that in itself it, it combines the engine of being able to get all those free spells but then the fact that you're just being able to put them so many you know back to back to back it turns into its own win condition because you're doing that so easily right uh, gave Guru of Spores from way back in that first Commander Precon mm -hmm. bundle. Sure. Gave makes the tokens that you need to facilitate that win, but the interaction on Gave also makes it so you can combo with almost anything. It's everything right there in one card. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And also, I would say um, the new Tiny Bones strikes me as a great example. That is an engine that will draw you a bunch of cards as you are forcing your opponents to discard with other cards in your deck, but then it also has the win condition stapled right onto the ability. Thank goodness in this particular case, because otherwise the discard games might go a little bit long when everyone's stuck, uh, top decking, but Tiny Bones can pay mana to have all of the opponents lose 10 life if you've successfully gotten rid of their, their hands to help close out that game more efficiently. So it definitely strikes me as um, a, a much more common uh, design 
design philosophy to have uh, you know the commander that helps set the stage and makes um, those plays a bit more lethal. It, it's the kind of thing to to watch out for for sure. And especially like I would say personally, I think the most powerful commanders in the game are the ones that merge those things that fuse them maybe a little bit too well, such as the case with Urza. Um, this is one that's doing all of those abilities really, really, really well, and that's what makes him so powerful. Um, whereas if he wasn't able to be an engine, but he still had powerful abilities in some other category, um, it wouldn't be quite as stunning, but the fact that he does both and that he does both of those things so well is what makes him so bonkers crazy. So here's a question for you guys then. In general, not in, a, in any given specific deck, what would you rather have more of? Would you rather have too many engines or too many win conditions in a deck? Ooh, I think I would err on the side of engines, um, in part because engines make it easier to get to that win condition, whether it's an engine that's keeping your opponent's board free, or if it's a filtering or card draw engine, letting you get down to those those win conditions. I think if you have to lean one way or the other, I myself would lean into engines because that would make up for the the lower amount of win conditions, whereas I don't think vice versa, it works that way. Yeah, and actually I would say that the, the data probably agrees with you there, Dana. When we look at the most popular commanders of all time, I would say that that's probably why Muldrotha has slammed into the number one position, because she is all engine. Um, or other commanders such as Lord Wingrace also shows up as, I believe, number, the number seven most popular commander. That is very much an engine type of commander who is going to be drawing you cards for all of those lands, and he's not really winning you that game. I would agree to like having the ability to find more of the things to make the deck do a something, whether that's drawing cards or making tokens or blinking stuff. Um, if you do enough of that, even if you have very few win conditions in the deck, you should be able to be engaged in that game. You'll never necessarily be completely out of it if you have um, erred on the side of more engines. Yeah, well, and, and I always make the comparison that Commander is a format about resource accumulation. So yeah, having more engines to uh, you know get all those resources on your side, that's going to help get you to those win conditions more consistently, whether it's you know get to it mana-wise and making sure you always have enough mana to cast your win conditions or you have enough cards in your hand you draw to those win conditions uh i i agree having more resources typically in a game of commander is going to be better than having very few resources but those are are, are the good resources that you're going to win the game with yeah but with that said you definitely need those win conditions. You yes. really can't skimp on those either because if your deck can do a lot of value, value doesn't win the game. In many situations, value and going, you know, playing too many of the uh, of the mole drifters, for example, that's not going to close things out. You do need ways to make sure that your board does become lethal. Make sure your deck is still going somewhere and use those win condition cards as sort of signposts that the deck is eventually building towards. Dana, like you mentioned, you're not just playing individual cards. You are also making sure that the rest of the deck maneuvers into a position where those cards become lethal for sure. So don't forget the win conditions, but engines are most likely more valuable. And they are in fact so valuable that sometimes the engines can be so good that they too become almost like a win condition. And that will be the second half of our show, which we will get to after our favorite segment, which is challenging those stats. There's a lot of data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play, and sometimes I think they're seeing too little play. So what we like to do is challenge those statistics here. Dana, start us off this week. What is your challenge? Uh, the challenge I have was sent in by Twitter user CommonSpence underscore 16, um, but it's exactly up my alley because it's an old card that nobody plays. Um, Perfect. 
Penance is a white enchantment, um, two and a white. Choose a card from your hand and put that card on top of your library. Prevent all damage from a black or red source. It's in 559 decks currently, and there's there's two useful axes here about this card. Uh, number one, there's a bunch of commanders that care about having cards in the top of your library. You have Yunette, you have Elsha the Infinite, you have Winota, Alapolani, Narset, Golos. Um, those cards, just using it as a way to set up your top deck is very, very useful. The other axis here, though, that's very, very relevant, 19 of the 20 most popular decks in EDH Rec in the last two years are black or red. So you are almost always going to be seeing a black or red source that's useful and going to get double duty out of this. You're going to stop damage from hitting you and you're going to set up the play you want to make with the, the free cast at the top of your library. So I, I'm... I okay. I so I have a Yannette deck, and this this is making me feel things. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Putting stuff on top of the deck to get the I I I really like this pick. I, I think Joey's just so dumbfounded about it that he just can't <laughs> find the words to express. Uh, it is interesting too. Yeah, just being able to manipulate the top deck, whether it's yeah with the Yannette, whether it's with uh, Narset, where you want to be playing all those you know free spells off the top of your library, not from your hand. I think there's a lot of different top deck manipulation specific applications here but then even like you said dana there's a ton of black and red commanders yeah. that are very very popular lately so yeah being able to have protection from those for just having to redraw you know your third land in hand uh, i don't think that's too bad of a deal right there and it's not just damage it's 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 not just combat damage it's damage from a source so there's a, there's it will get around sure. that that shiner's ignition that's going to dome you for 20. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, this reminds me a lot of the uh, the enchantment fanatical devotion because it is a sacrifice outlet, which is really the thing that you want, but it also can occasionally regenerate a creature when you sacrifice. You can like, pick a creature to regenerate, which like is just the bonus icing on the cake, which sometimes mm -hmm. is useful, but doesn't even necessarily need to be. And that's how I feel about this card. This is very intriguing. And Dana, man, leave it to you and to our awesome listeners, of course, yes. <laughs> uh, to find obscure cards that totally make my day. I absolutely love this. Um, I'm going to move into my challenge now, and this is a card that I think is seeing too much play, the card Kaya's Wrath. This is a four-mana Wrath spell that costs white, white, black, black to destroy all creatures and you gain life equal to the number of creatures you controlled that were destroyed this way. This card shows up in 6,300 decks, and I just can't get with this card, even in specifically Orzov decks. The double white and double black pips on this spell make it very, very difficult to cast, and I would genuinely rather play just a regular Wrath of God or a Fumigate. Even if it is a little bit more expensive on the Fumigate, it will gain me more life, and it isn't as strict on the casting cost to cast. I've just never been impressed with Kaya's Wrath. I don't feel like that bonus is worth the really strict mana requirements. I just really don't like this Wrath, and I don't think that it should nearly as much play as it does. Yeah, I think if it had the Fumigate Clause where it was all creatures, that would be a different story. But I think the upside there over a Wrath of God, having to pay two extra black is is not a good trade-off. 
Yeah, it's and and there's always the like, well, you can play both sort of argument here, but this color combination is not hurting for amazing wrath right. effects, <laughs> and this is really low on the list compared to the austere commands and the merciless evictions. Even if those cost a little bit more, their efficacy is so much greater than maybe gaining a little bit of life off of this. But they also don't require such strict mana. I just I can't get with this card, and 6,300 decks is way way too much for this one. So I think that this should see way less play than it does. All right, Matt, how about your challenge? So my challenge is for one of our new Corset 21 commanders. We have a little bit of data coming in, and so far, uh, Jorail Monvoli Recluse has been built a little bit, one of the uh, mid-tier commanders as far as popularity goes. But one card that I haven't seen as much that I think should be in order to take advantage of the first ability on uh, Jorail I think should be seeing a little more play. So Joel Rail reads, whenever you draw your second card each turn, create a 2-2 green cat creature token. That's the ability that I, we really wanna dial in here. So being able to draw that second card per turn, it's pretty easy to do it in green on your own turn. But being able to do that every turn is something that I think people could be taking better advantage of. A card that can do that is Mind's Eye. So that's an artifact for five mana. Whenever an opponent draws a card, you may pay one mana if you do draw a card. So it's currently only seeing play in 13% of the deck so far for Joel Rail. I think that should be a little higher for a couple reasons. The first one being you're in mono green. You're probably drawing a ton of cards and we're not drawing a ton of cards. You're probably doing that because it's mono green in 2020, mm. but you're drawing a ton of lands uh, because you are mono green. So you have access to the best ramp out there. And there's already a lot of cards in the deck that are going to be drawing extra cards on your turn, whether it's Staff of Nin or uh, Slate of Ancestor to draw a bunch of cards all at once. But Mind's Eye lets you take advantage of what everybody else is going to be doing at the table with that extra mana. Obviously, you know, with Jorail's second ability where it costs six mana, you want to be building up to a lot of mana on the battlefield anyways so being able to use that in between the beginning and the end with mind's eye is something i think is very powerful that's going to help you build your army a little bit quicker than you would have otherwise another cool thing there is that mind's eye we usually think of it in the context of uh colors that have more difficulty with accumulating cards in hand um and mm -hmm. particularly the barrier there is how much mana this costs before you start actually drawing those cards that is not a concern for green decks they've got tons no. of mana. This won't be difficult at all. So that's a really clever pick that you can actually use to get more of those cats on board to then fuel Joel Rail's ridiculous overrun ability of making your stuff really. Yeah, I, I like this, especially because that's not a weakness that uh, exists for green at all. That's a barrier that is really, really low bar for her. Yeah, and we've talked a couple times on this podcast about how Mind's Eye maybe has been power crept out a little bit, but I still think there's some good applications there. This mono green, you know, with having mana to spare kind of deck that obviously wants a lot of cards in your hand too. I think this is just a good mana sink in a deck that's probably going to have some spare mana laying around. All right, cool stuff, you guys. Now let's move into the second part of our show, and this is where things get a little bit trickier. And specifically, we're hoping that this conversation will be a good, uh, helpful tool to help folks out when they're doing threat evaluation, because there's a, a funny thing that happens for some of these engines and some of these win conditions, because some cards are so good at being an engine within given contexts, within a certain commander's deck, for example, that they actually can become the thing that facilitates the victory in the first place. They are almost more valuable in the deck than whatever cards are that are helping you uh, end the game. Those engines are just that good. And so we want to talk about some cards that maybe in one deck, they look like a regular average engine. 
but in another deck, they literally help facilitate victory in a pretty unexpected way. So let's get to some examples of those. Maybe just moving through in, cuddle, in color order, uh, what are some examples that jump to your guys' minds of cards that are really good engines in one place, but also kind of turn into win conditions in different contexts? So the first one I think we should talk about, because it's just one of the newer ones that is kind of taken the format by storm, I would say, is Smothering Tithe. Now this is an insanely powerful mana engine. Uh, it's three and a white for an enchantment that says whenever an opponent draws a card, they may pay two mana. If they don't, you create a colorless treasure artifact, cre to or excuse me, artifact token with tap to sacrifice this artifact to add one mana of any color. It is such an amazing mana generating enchantment. It's, uh, I have some trouble explaining the context. I'm just so overwhelmed by it. Uh, what do you guys say about this? I mean, yeah, I look at that card and in the average deck, I'm like, oh, this is going to give me a ton of mana. That's really cool. Like it's really, but it's, you know, it's just mana, except that in some decks, for example, wheel decks like Shabraz and Brawlin, which include white, you can play a single windfall and you're getting like 21 mana from this and you'll just have drawn a bunch of new cards, which means you can probably cast another wheel type of ability. This card, the Smothering Tithe, is the thing that lets that deck go completely off. So in that context, it is way more valuable than just being a mana producing enchantment. Well, in, in something like a Kiri Line Slinger, where a Kiri gets stronger based on the amount of artifacts you have in play, it turns your commander into a one-shot machine. Um, if you are playing in black and you have access to Revel and Riches, it suddenly makes Revel and Riches really, really easy to just win you the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are playing against an Akiri deck and you see the Smothering Tithe, the threat level on that card in that context is way bigger than if I'm playing against Dana's Sphinx Tribal deck, for example. Um, another example that comes to my mind is a uh, Suture Priest. I see this all the time in life gain decks. Um, this is one that whenever you have creatures enter the battlefield under your control, you gain a life, but your opponents will lose a life if they get creatures into play. And this strikes me in normal life gain decks. They just want a life gain trigger. Say, for example, um, a Karlov of the Ghost Council deck, for instance. You'll play some creatures. You've got maybe some other Soul Sister type cards that help out with this. And usually I would just sort of think of that as an engine that gives you a lot of life and a lot of life gain triggers. But there are definitely ways that you can turn that lethal to. Yeah. I mean, Feldegriff decks have kind of historically made kind of a, a teehee moment <laughs> out of using Suture Priest and just destroying the battlefield because Feldegriff is the Bant commander. It's back from alliances, I want to say, but it has this really cool ability where you can pay one green mana and give Feldegriff Trample, but you also give somebody else on the battlefield a 1-1 token. So you use this with Suture Priest to give them a token and you dome them for life. And then you activate the begin give them another token, hit them again with Suture Priest. And it's just this instant little combo that's really, really cool. Uh, it gets pretty gross with Suture Priest punishing them for having creatures come into the battlefield on their, you know, on their battlefield. Yeah, that's really, really great. I love that you called it a teehee moment because that is... That's exactly it's the what ultimate it is. kind of it, so there's gotcha, then there's oh did you see that and then teehee is like the the tip top <laughs> of the of the the scale right there. <laughs> Good night. You also have a karmic guide that's just a really really useful value card in white. But if you have access to Revel Arc as well, then you can get a loop going and take advantage of that in all kinds of ways, whether it's to abuse some kind of an ETB trigger or um, particularly is usually what happens. So it goes from being just a nice value piece in white to 
a straight up win condition. Yeah, and and it's kind of funny looking through the data. Fifty two percent of people who are running Karmic Guide uh, are also running Revelark, and I expected that to be a much higher number. I expected them to almost be part and parcel uh, with each other, doing that combo of reviving something and then Revelark leaves the battlefield and get the Karmic Guide back, and then it revives and yada yada. But there are plenty of decks that are just running one of those pieces and not the other. And in those contexts, that's probably just a regular sort of helpful reanimators uh, effect, maybe in like an Alesha deck. But if you put it into a Carador deck, then it's much more likely to be a bit of a combo problem. And so if you can exile it from the graveyard, that would be very, very helpful indeed. Probably would be, yeah. Don't don't touch Joey's graveyard. Don't touch my graveyard, but I don't play Carador, <laughs> so you're, you're welcome to exile Carador's graveyard. But yeah, just like if you have the opportunity to, like the threat level of those cards in different decks, definitely way, way high. What are some other examples if we move on to blue? So, I mean, one of the first ones that jumps out that people can use they don't typically use it, but time warp and just time walk effects where you're taking extra turns, those tend to be, you know, kind of a value play in the average deck, but there are definitely some decks that can run away with those. Yeah, things like Narset or Edric Fabestra Trust want to get that first extra turn and use that to get another extra turn into an extra turn and just run the game out infinitely. But it's also possible just to cast it as a value play. Like I, I do see both of those things happen and you can't necessarily be sure which what's going on unless you're looking closely at what the commander does. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mystical Tutor, similarly, and there's also things like long-term plans in blue that put cards in the top of your library. Oftentimes, I run Mystical Tutor just to get an answer. Um, same thing with long-term plans. I have that in one deck as well. But if you're playing in one of those blue decks that takes advantage of things being on the top of your library, well, that's a whole <laughs> different thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like you mentioned the penance for Yannette earlier. Um, yeah. Yeah, I will use Mystical Tutor to put something absolutely nasty on top of my deck. And you should be much more afraid of my tutor in that deck if I'm putting an expropriate on top of the deck, for example. Um, you should be much more afraid of the tutor in that context. Like if you have the ability to get out of my hand or something, that will probably be better than in the average Spellslinger deck, maybe. Oh, and I've totally use this as an unfair holy cow I'm going to run with the game uh, when I had my Narset deck together I would put time stretch on the top of my library and just that would start the chain like Dana said it would turn one extra turn spell into another one into another one uh, and that's kind of how I would combo off but I've also seen people a uh, god eternal Kefnet uh, they set up kind of a, a value play and, and get something, even though they weren't playing the, you know, the infinite turns type of deck, but they were, you know, trying to get, you know, extra uh, draw spells uh, that they would copy off with that. So, yeah, I've, I've seen a little bit of both with the Mystical Tutor as well. Yeah, or Jaleva strikes me as another really impressive one that will turn a tutor into mm -hmm. a, oh, this game's going to go way, way south, way quick. So yeah, in those contexts, it isn't just a value card. It is much more of a card that is going to facilitate the victory conditions by which that deck will be judged or whatever. That I'm butchering the quote that I had mentioned earlier. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> now. Um, a windfall strikes me as another example, I think, in blue, because I've seen plenty of decks. I, 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 I run it in my Mimeoplasm deck as a way to fill the graveyard. And I think Kest decks, uh, Kest Dissonant Mage, who can cast spells out of her graveyard, she also really likes uh, just filling up the graveyard by using spells like this. But windfall fall also can be kind of the engine that makes wheels decks go nuts in the first place. So Windfall is absolutely a value card, but if you're playing something like the Locust God or Nekusar, it's very much a win condition in those decks. Yeah, especially because like with this Mothering Tithe example, usually a wheel will chain into another wheel, which will chain into another wheel. And it tends to be like one big turn for sure. Um, so yeah, in different contexts, 
those cards become way more deadly. Um, another example that kind of jumps to my mind would be if we're moving on to a black, Zulaport Cutthroat is a card that I've also seen some life gain decks just use to proc some Karlov triggers. Um, but I mean, I think we all know that I make that a very deadly card in different contexts too. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Joey, you have your Marin of Clan Neltoth where you just have so much value going over and over again that Zulaport Cutthroat just nugs everybody to death. But in my Tasa Karlov deck, too, that's kind of the win condition there when I get some loop going of I'm sacrificing my creatures, generating mana, but all the while Zulaport Cutthroat is doing the heavy lifting by actually attacking the life totals. Yeah, it's definitely been a win condition by itself uh, in my Tasa Karlov deck. And, and that's, I think, an important thing. Probably the the context with which most people are familiar with Zulaport, with Zulaport Cutthroat is in the Aristocrat-style decks, where they know that that one's going to be very, very deadly. But then if you see it in a life gain deck, it won't be as deadly. But if you're carrying over your threat assessment from those other contexts into the life gain deck example, then you might overvalue the Zulaport Cutthroat on that board when it isn't necessarily as big an important thing for that particular deck. And so that's really what we want to try and keep in mind is, you know, in these different contexts, they are more deadly in, than other things. So watch out for those because in one deck, it might be the win condition, but in another deck, it might be the engine. And don't, you know, if this deck is just using it as an engine, make sure that you don't, you know, treat it like it's going to be used like a win condition because then that can save you um, a lot of usefulness in the game, I think, uh, making sure that you understand the difference of the power of those cards in those different contexts. Well, speaking of powerful cards, this is one that always seems to sneak up on me and, and really just catch me off guard. Uh, Dread Presence is a black card Ooh. that every time that I see it, it seems to get better and better. And, and Dread Presence, a lot of people forgot about it, so I'll read it right now. It's three and a black for a 3-3 three, three Nightmare, uh, but when a Swamp enters the battlefield under your control, you get to choose to either draw a card and lose a life or have Dread Presence deal two damage to any target, any target, so creature, planeswalker, player, and then you gain two life. That right there, I mean, it has, I mean, modal cards always seem to be very, very good engines, but where do you guys see this one shifting gears? I mean, if, if you're playing Lord Windgrace and yeah. you have access to Urborg, you're, that's, you're, that's, that's it yeah. right there. We can bye move bye. on. No, no, we can't move on. We've got to talk about it. This is a win condition that I loved using in Lord Windgrace. It's so, so good because he will get so many lands into play. And with Urborg, they're all swamps. So this can be a way to draw some cards in a regular mono black deck, but can also just totally win you the game if you are doing this. There are 37% of uh, Windgrace players are using Urborg and only 14% are using Dread Presence. If you are one of those 37% using Urborg, immediately put Dread presence into your windgrace <laughs> deck it those numbers should be exactly equal it is it is one of the most more powerful win conditions that i had in that deck because when you play splendid reclamation and get like 10 swamps quote unquote into play and you dome someone for 20 and you gain 20 it feels so good it feels so good uh, if we jump over to red, we have Outpost Siege, an enchantment that has two modes you can pick when it comes into play. Uh, first mode, at the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of your library until end of turn you may play that card. So it's basically your red's version of kind of Phyrexian Arena. Uh, the second mode, whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, Outpost Siege deals one damage to any target. So it can just be an engine if you're playing in a deck that needs draw, um, which red decks often do. But if you are playing in the right kind of deck that has a whole bunch of tokens, um, whether it's, you know, elves, goblins, what have you, it's very much a win condition. Well, so so you know how Joey just got super, super excited to talk about Dread Presence a minute ago? <laughs> this is where I am without Post Siege in Valduk decks because it is yeah. a leave the battlefield trigger. It's yeah. not a death trigger. Uh, so Valduk has a tendency to create a bunch of 3-1 elemental tokens every combat. 
Uh, so one thing that you can do since they have to get exiled at the end of the end, at the beginning of the end step, uh, they leave and trigger Outpost Siege. This card is so good. It's so versatile too. That's like the best thing about this is you can shift gears. And so if you draw it early, yeah, you get that draw engine. You keep, you know keep your card advantage you know moving along, but you draw late game and you have four or five plus uh, you know things on Valduk. That gets so good so quick, guys. Like it's, and if you combine that with Torbrin, for example, because Ooh. Torbrin gets to add that extra damage on top of it. I'm sure Goblin players, you know, hit you have a Goblin bombardment out there. Man, this it's so easy for this card to snowball into just an insanely powerful win condition. Very, very much, and it can be an engine and a win condition. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a, a very nice card indeed. And also in red, you have things like aggravated assault. Um, which gives you that extra combat step. This is similar to the time warp we mentioned in blue, where sometimes just getting a little bit of extra value, getting a second swing in is really, really useful, but it's not the kind of thing you're planning on as a win condition, unless... Unless you're playing cards like Savage Ventmaw, which just happen to go infinite. Uh, that's where it can get really out of hand. It spirals pretty quick. I know uh, Neheb is a, a combo commander with Aggravated Assault because it's so easy to generate mana every combat step, which you just reinvest back into Aggravated Assault to get another combat step. So it's, yes, it can be a nice little value engine. You, you get an extra combat step here and there, but it's also very easy to just use this as a blatant infinite combo take over the game type of card. Yeah, and uh, compare it with Sword of Feast and Famine as well, because that oh, will untap yeah. your lands whenever you uh, mm -hmm. deal damage to someone. So knowing what those are capable of, that might, you know, make you want to reassess, ooh, how threatening is that aggravated assault on the battlefield that I see? Are they just going to use that for an extra 10 damage, or are they going to use that to make this game become over? Well, and it's funny, too, that you say Sword of Feast and Famine, because they actually made an errata on that card. It says, Protection from Dana Roach. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had that card come up, and it just did not just blank everything Dana was doing. So, yeah, I need to play Aggravated Assault more often. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, hopping over to green, we have Elemental Bond which is a pretty useful card in your average Stompy deck. It lets you draw a card whenever a beefier creature comes into play. That's the kind of thing green decks tend to do, and that seems like a pretty good piece in the average green deck, and we can probably just move on to the next one, I think. No, 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 we can't, because I am going to give everyone a huge piece of advice if you ever have uh, the, the ability to play against me when I am playing my Titania Protector of Argoth deck. Elemental Bond is the best card in that deck. In a lot of other decks, Elemental Bond will just draw you like, oh yeah, I played a big dragon, I'll draw a card. Oh, I made a big token, I'll draw a card. Titania specifically, I can sacrifice all of my lands very, very easily, say with like a Zurin orb, and I'll make like 10 elementals and I'll draw 10 cards. And from among those, I'll probably find some type of effect like a Splendid Reclamation to bring those lands back, maybe with more. And then I can sacrifice those lands again and maybe make 15 elementals now. And I've just drawn 25 cards. And that is a low estimate. I am not kidding when I said that Elemental Bond has facilitated my ability to draw like upwards of 50 cards in a game when I'm playing Titania because of how easy it is to create those tokens, which is what allows me to find the things that then make those tokens gain haste, like a Concordant Crossroads, for example. If you see a Garrick's Uprising or an Elemental Bond against a Titania player, you should be much, much, much more afraid of that Elemental Bond in that context than in probably any other context, because that is what will draw them like 50. 50 cards. That card is nuts. So it's not just value. That right there is what helps me win that game more than anything else. 
goodness, I love that card so much in Titania. Well, well, let's go from a card then that's going to draw you 50 cards per turn to generating 50 mana per turn. Uh, that card is Seedborn Muse. It's yep. three green green for a 2-4 spirit. Untap all permanents you control. All permanents you control during each other player's end step. Now, it's pretty obvious to see that this you know you untap everything you get all your lands back and you just get a bunch of mana. Uh, that could be pretty good if you're operating at instant speed quite a bit, but I'm sure, you know, getting lots of mana, there's no way to use that degenerately, right? Oh, yeah, no, no way at all. Nothing like maybe Krufix, who collects and keeps all of that mana, or Thrasios, who will allow you to then use that mana very efficiently every single turn. I'm sure that there's no way for the value that Seaborn Muse is to provides for those commanders to become so overwhelming that Seaborn Muse is practically the thing that's making you win. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Uh, the old Simic commanders with Seaborn Muse. How naive of me to <laughs> forget that interaction exists. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. And Green's full of them. I think that doubling season is a great case study for us to look at here too because i think it can serve as a pretty good engine for maybe a plus one counters deck and the decks that i have that use plus one counters this amplifies them quite a whole lot but i wouldn't say that it's necessarily the thing that really seals the deal in the game but there are definitely other ways that doubling season becomes oh no this is the thing that will make them win like within the next card that they play. Well, I mean, super friends, if you get to play a, a planeswalker and then right away ultimate it, that that in itself is just a win condition right there. You take over a game instantly with whatever massive ultimate that you have. Uh, it, it's so hard to come back from that because you can't really see it coming either. I mean, you see the doubling season, but then having the planeswalker come down and ultimate right away, that's oftentimes is going to be devastating. Yeah, although, you know, in both contexts, you should probably get rid of the doubling season. Let's yeah. be real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're playing a token strategy, it can kind of be both. It can be your win condition that gives you that that maximum presence uh, unless you finally have enough tokens to kill everybody. Or it could just be what enables you to get tokens along the way, even more of them, whether you're sacrificing them or using them to, to buff something else. So I think in, in that kind of deck, it does a little bit of both. So let's move now into some artifacts. Uh, uh, one that comes to my mind that I think really hops the line between being a win condition card versus an engine card is uh, Mesmeric Orb, the two mana artifact. Whenever people untap stuff, they mill that many cards. In the decks that I tend to play, Mr. Graveyard, I know, I usually view this as an engine to fill up the graveyard. For example, I have that Mimeoplasm deck and he loves a huge big graveyard, but he specifically only likes the orb because it is making the graveyards big and then he will use those graveyards. But I mean, we know that there are definitely some decks we talked about it on our last episode that use the Mesmeric Orb in a very different way. Well, Bruvac, I know we talked about him already being just a mill win condition, gets especially lethal with Mesmeric Orb. Or I know Joey, the card that can kind of shift gears in a deck of yours, Sir Conrad. Yeah. Early game Mesmeric Orb is definitely an engine. But once you have it, you know, established the board and, and Sir Conrad is out, Mesmeric Orb has to get taken care of immediately. Yes, very much, because otherwise Sir Conrad will see a lot of creatures hit the graveyard and takes over. Absolutely takes a over. Ton of damage. It's it's very beautiful, but yeah, very different purposes for those different uh, decks for sure. And so their threat level, you'll have to base based off of those. Like, how much do you fear a big graveyard? Because you probably don't need to worry all that much about the Mesmeric Orb if you've got a rest in peace. But if you're playing against that mill player, the rest in peace is not necessarily going to save you because they are still planning on milling you and milling you very, very efficiently. So it's definitely a thing that you gotta watch out for. The other thing here are the artifact Sacco. It's probably worth talking about for a minute, mm. uh, particularly Frexian Altar and Ajant Altar, and maybe to a lesser extent, KCI. Um, those are artifacts that let you sacrifice a creature to generate mana. And 
people do oftentimes use those just defensively as a way to keep someone from stealing their creatures that's common in their meta or if you tend to make a lot of tokens it lets you sacrifice those tokens to to make kind of a, a big play and generate extra value um so people do run those i don't want to use the term fairly but they do run those <laughs> just as a value generator However, Matthew, I think, may have some thoughts on this. I mean, I have plenty of thoughts, but uh, how, how often do I want to bring them up? Uh, but artifact <laughs> commanders, they do so many crazy things, just sacrificing you know, to Kark Clan Ironworks, which just generates a ton of mana. You're using things like you know Tap Soul Ring for two mana, then you sacrifice it. So you net four mana. Uh, Brea is one of those commanders that just is, it's so easy to combo off with any of these types of effects. And I even know that, you know, Valda kind of can turn Ashnod's Altar into a very good value engine, you know, sacrificing those elementals that are going to go away anyways. But yeah, it's very easy to turn sack outlets into win conditions. I mean, who has ever heard of powering up, you know, sacrificing your board for a bunch of mana and then torment a hailfire for 15? That's never happened, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I especially think of them in like you're talking about a red deck that sacrifices creatures. And I'm just over here like, Psh, come on, sacrificing creatures is the black decks absolutely love this because i'm thinking of sacrificing all my avenger of zendikar tokens to get a bunch of mana mm -hmm. to then cast like a living death which will then bring the avenger of zendikar right back for me uh to get even more mana and maybe if i have an eternal witness i'll get that back to like the thing that is facilitating all of that becoming lethal is the phyrexian altar and in those like it can be an engine to get me experience counters if i'm playing marin of clan Nelthoth, but usually it's the thing that's actually making that engine become so obnoxiously lethal that it itself is what facilitates the actual victory i mean it's almost like literally any action in the game of magic doing it and that requires zero mana to activate or maybe even <laughs> generating mana is a powerful effect yeah doing anything for zero mana especially at any time not just that but yes. like some of these they create mana therefore they are mana abilities which like can't even be countered <laughs> like that's a special action or something like you can't it's not even something that necessarily uses the stack like even that is what makes them absolutely bonkers so yeah that's that's a really tough one uh to probably parse out I think they're always very dangerous, but they do, you know, flip between that line of this is the engine and this is the win condition for sure. All right. Well, we've kind of gone over quite a bit now. Let's let's wrap this up. Let's get back on task here because we could go for days and, and days, probably weeks and weeks talking about just all the nonsense that you can go do in this format, which is great. That's why we play this format. But let's wrap it up. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we, we head out of here? Just to make sure that you observe when a card is fulfilling a certain role in one area, but when you move it into a different area, it could become way more deadly or way less deadly. And that knowing whether a card is an engine or it is a win condition in specifically the context that surrounds it is sometimes more important than the card itself. Like Dana mentioned earlier at the show, it is about maneuvering yourself into certain positions. And that is true for these cards for sure. And so, yeah, just make sure that you're, you, you want to have a lot of engines, but also know when sometimes those engines become different or become so powerful that there's something uh, more than just an engine. That's a really valuable lesson, I think, that will help uh, figure out what you should be trying to destroy or what you should be valuing most in your own games of Commander. Yeah, like if there's a particular card that's being your value engine, you're probably much more comfortable rolling it out early on in the game to start accruing that value. If that card is your win condition 
or, or part of a win condition and you need it to be around at a point in the game when you have set yourself up to get to that point, you don't want to play it early. So like you need to also yourself be aware of what role those cards fill in your particular deck to play them at the appropriate time. Because it's really easy to get excited and get that Smothering Tithe out early thinking you're going to get a bunch of value off it. But if you are really counting on that to power up your Akiri Line Slinger, mm. you might want to wait till it's a point in the game when you can keep it safe and also have your commander out and have the ability to, to, to punch that damage through. Yeah, shifting gears is absolutely one of those soft skills of playing this format that you can always get better. I know I definitely can get better about timing when I'm playing things and knowing what I'm building towards as well. You know, if if I know that Dana has two board wipes in hand, maybe I'm not looking to establish my creatures on the board, but, you know, play that smothering tithe because he doesn't have answers for that that I know about. Uh, so just practicing, you know, the, the when and the where of all your engines and how you're going to be able to maximize all that just by, you know, managing the when just as much as the what. Yeah, absolutely. This was a really great discussion, guys. It was so awesome. But with that, I think what we need to do is call this episode to a close. So thank you guys so much for joining me. And if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And we haven't mentioned this yet, but you can find all these weird interactions that we're talking about with each other, most likely on the stream, <laughs> twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast, where we are playing games every Wednesday night. We have amazing guests. We obviously have amazing games because, you know, we like to pick on each other. So you should definitely <laughs> check those out, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can read my articles a couple times a month on the DDH Rec main website. And you can hear me on my other podcast at least once a week, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDH Rec cast on Facebook and on Twitter. And don't forget, if you visit those right now, look at our social medias so that you can participate in the polling for the SALT scores. We are updating those lists. So make sure that you find EDH Rec on social media to update, make some votes about what you think the saltiest cards in Commander are. And we'll have an episode soon coming out to see if there are any changes that have happened once the polling has completed. Uh, if you have a question for the site as well, maybe an insight to EDHRX data or a challenge the stats pick that you would love for us to know about that you want to appear right here on the show, you can contact us at EDHRECCast at gmail.com. Our thanks again to Josh Lequai and the entire team at the Command Zone who handled the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, our thanks to our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting cardkingdom.com slash to show your support for the show. We would love to hear from you about what your favorite engines and win conditions are in your decks and maybe any cards that you think are engines in one context but become almost like win conditions themselves in different contexts. We would love to hear from you. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Mm -hmm.